We're going to talk about what is revival. We'll do that today. Next week, we're going to talk about when is it needed. And we're going to examine the scripture and find out when does this, whatever this revival is, when is it actually needed in the life of a believer? And then the last week, we're going to look at how does it happen and what are the results when it does happen? What does it look like when it takes place? Okay? So we're going to start today in Habakkuk chapter 3. And uh, I want to read just one verse to you. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse number 2. The Bible says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. By the way, the word renew there in the Hebrew can also be translated revived. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. Now look at the next phrase. In wrath. Remember mercy. Now, what in the world does all that mean? And even more, what does it have to do with revival? Bless that word prayer, and I'll share that with you. Okay? Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for Jesus. And as we heard um, earlier from Dr. Carney's message, that without Christ, there are so many things in life that we would never have. But the one thing that we need more than anything else that only comes through Christ is salvation, forgiveness of our sins, and a home in heaven. And so, Father, as we live our lives in that personal relationship with you that began the day we received Christ as our Savior, Lord, we ask that you would revive us when it's necessary. Teach us now over these next few weeks what spiritual revival is, why we need it, and what to do when we realize that need. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Teach us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, before we get into this, let me read you something that... Uh, comes from a book entitled Lectures on Revival by Charles Finney. When I first came out of Bible college and went into revival work, one of the things I did was I studied revivals. And if you've ever studied some of the great revivals in history, uh, then you'll meet certain people. One of those people you will meet is Charles Finney. Another guy you'll read about is Dwight L. Moody, who started Moody Bible Institute up in Chicago. Um, both of these men, along with many others, were men who were involved and whose hearts were extremely burdened over the need for God's people to be revived so that people who did not know Christ could come to know Christ. Billy Graham is a modern-day Charles Finney or D.L. Moody, for he himself spent his life with the growing, driving passion that people needed to know Christ as their personal Savior. And the way he chose to do that was through evangelistic crusades. Many of you may have been to some of Billy Graham's crusades, where he filled stadiums of people to share the gospel with them. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the Billy Graham crusades, and if you've ever been to one or been involved in one as a counselor, you know this. 
Um, if you watch them on TV, there's a stadium full of people. And we were involved in one in Nashville uh, when he came to um, the Titan Stadium in Nashville several years ago. When he gives the invitation, and if you've ever watched them, everybody knows what song they sing. Just as I am, without one plea. They begin to sing this song, and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, all of a sudden just get up and start coming out of their seats. Do you realize that the majority of those people are not the people coming to get saved? The majority of those people initially who get up and come from their seats are believers just like you and me that had been praying for weeks and months that people would come to know Christ. And they are coming to be available when these people come to help tell them how to know Christ. That's who most of those people are. That's the revival part of the evangelistic movement. Now that's what we're talking about. First of all, I want you to know this. Revival only comes to believers. And we'll look at the meaning of the word in just a minute. But let me read you what um, Charles Finney wrote in the very first chapter of his book entitled Lectures on Revival. These were actually lectures he gave to a group of preachers on revival. So let me read you what he says in his first lecture entitled What a Revival of Religion Is. By the way, he begins with the verse we started with, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse number 2. And here's what he writes. It is supposed that the prophet Habakkuk was contemporary with Jeremiah. In other words, he did at the same time Jeremiah did. And that this prophecy was uttered in anticipation of the Babylonian captivity. You'll remember when Jeremiah wrote the first part of his book, the children of Israel had turned their backs on God. They had disobeyed God. They had started worshiping false gods. And God has said, because of it, I'm going to send you into Babylon for 70 years and you're going to be slaves to the Babylonians for 70 years. This was, first of all, punishment for turning their back on God, but there was another reason for it. We'll talk more about that next week. But it was a motivational tool used by God to turn his people back to him. That was the primary reason for the captivity. And so Habakkuk, when he's writing this, is one of them that's about to go into this captivity. He goes on to say, Looking at the judgments which were speedily to come upon his nation, the soul of the prophet was brought up to an agony. And he cries out in his distress, O Lord, revive thy work. As if he had said, O Lord, grant that thy judgments may not make Israel desolate. In the midst of these awful years, let the judgments of God be made the means of reviving religion among us. And then he quotes that last phrase in verse number 2. In wrath, remember your mercy. They were about to go through wrath. They were about to go through some awful times. And Habakkuk says, Lord, in the middle of all of that, please remember your mercy. And use this time as a means to revive in the life and heart of your people. He uses the term religion. For us, we probably better would understand that as a devoted desire to live our life with our relationship with Christ as the number one priority. So when he says religion, that's what he's talking about. God's relationship with me is the most important thing in my life. Okay? So when you hear this term religion, that's what he's talking about. Religion is the work of man. It is something for man to do. It consists 
In obeying God with and from the heart. It is man's duty. It is true. God induces man to do it. He influences him by his spirit because of his great wickedness and reluctance to obey. If it were not necessary for God to influence men, if men were disposed to obey God, there would be no occasion to pray, O Lord, revive thy work. The ground of necessity for such a prayer is that men are wholly indisposed to obey. And unless God interposed the influence of his spirit, not a man on earth will ever obey the commands of God. In other words, what he says is, if God doesn't work in your heart and in mine, there's not a one of us left to ourselves that would choose to obey God. Not one of us. As a matter of fact, even when God does work in our heart, and we make that decision that we want to live for God, we still struggle with doing what God says in every area of our life. That's what he's talking about. A revival of religion presupposes a declension. Almost all the religion in the world has been produced by revivals. God has found it necessary to take advantage of the excitability. This is interesting. The excitability there is in mankind. You know what our excitability is? Another word for that is our desires. Passion. What we like. What we want to do. Okay? That's what he's talking about. He says to produce powerful excitements among them before he can lead them to obey. Men are so spiritually sluggish. There are so many things to lead their minds off from religion or their relationship with God and to oppose the influence of the gospel that it is necessary to raise an excitement among them till the tide rises so high as to sweep away the opposing obstacles. In plain English, that means that God has to so stir my heart to where my desire to live for God and do what God tells me to do is so much stronger than all the other things in life that would keep me from doing that, that those things fade away and become secondary in my life to me really wanting to live for God. He goes on to say, they must be so excited that they will break over these counteracting influences before they will obey God. Not that excited feeling is religion, for it's not. But it is excited desire, appetite, and feeling that prevents this relationship. The will is, in a sense, enslaved by the carnal and worldly desires. Hence, it is necessary to awaken men to a sense of guilt and danger and thus produce an excitement of counterfeeling and desire which will break the power of carnal and worldly desire and leave the will free to obey God. Basically what he says is, you and I as human beings have inside of us a sinful nature. It's the nature we were born with. It is the part of our life that says, I want to do what I want to do. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what the government says, I don't care what my mom and dad say, I don't care what the preacher says, I don't care what my boss says, I don't care what my spouse says, I don't care what my friends say, I don't even care what God says. I'm going to live my life and do what I want to do, because after all, it's my life, I do with it whatever I want to do. And that sounds pretty... 
But the truth is, every single one of us has that monster inside of us. Every one of us. That's what Dr. Finney was talking about has to be overcome in order for us to do and be the person that God wants us to be. Okay? Now, here's what I want to do today. First of all, I want us to define the word revive itself. What exactly does the word mean? Well, in Habakkuk chapter 3, you've already seen one way to define the word revive, and it's the word renew. Habakkuk says, Lord, in the midst of this Babylonian captivity, when we're being punished because we decided to do what we wanted to do and not what you wanted us to do. That's the main reason. He says, will you renew what you used to do in our life? That's what he's talking about. In a minute, we're going to go through a couple of incidences in the life of the Jewish people, which, by the way, explains over and over again this process of revival. And you're going to see that even in the life of the Jews, it had to happen more than once. That's why we need it more than once. It's not going to be like you go to a revival meeting, you go forward, you rededicate your life to the Lord, and now I'm great. I'll never have to do this again. I'm going to be wonderful. Let me ask you this. Have any of you ever been involved in an evangelistic or a revival crusade where, where that kind of stuff happens? Okay. About a week and a half to two weeks after the meeting's over, what happens? Everybody goes right back to normal. Why? Because the emotion of the event fades away. That's where, during the excitement, the passion that is stirred in my heart to walk with God has got to be coupled with biblical principle that I have to obey daily. And those biblical principles have to be obeyed even if that emotion is not present. That's where the discipline comes from. Where Paul said in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the things that I want to do, I find myself not doing them. So I find inside of me a law that when I want to do the right thing, I'm constantly being battled with by my flesh. So I have to bring my body into subjection and make it do what it's supposed to do, which, by the way, was brought about during that revival time when I recommitted myself to the priority of living for God above everything else. So, to renew what God does in our life, to stir that passion, that's basically what revival is. Now, another thing about the definition, it means to renew life. You cannot renew something that was never there. You don't renovate a house that has never been built. Right? You have to build it first. Then it gets old and needs repairs, and you renovate it. That's why revival, renewing of life, only comes to believers. You can't renew spiritual life in an individual where spiritual life has never been placed. That's why lost people can't experience revival. They need to experience new life. They need to be born again and have Christ come into their life as their Savior so that they are regenerated. That's the theological term that literally means they are given spiritual life. Once we get that spiritual life, that's when the necessity, periodically, for revival of that spiritual life inside of us comes about. But until that spiritual life is put there, 
You can't revive something that has never had life before. So that's why revival is not only a renewal of what God has done in our life before, but it also only comes to those who have had spiritual life put there to begin with. Okay? So that basically is what revival is. Um, let me give you some other descriptions of this. To renew, to bring back again, to stir, or to excite the desire. All these things we've talked about. Now what is spiritual revival? Um, a lot of us have probably experienced revival in our life that had nothing to do with anything spiritual. Have any of you guys ever decided to go on a diet or an exercise program? Probably. How many times in your life have you started and quit and started over again? That, in essence, is a form of reviving. There was a passion in my life that I am five foot eleven. I weigh two hundred and seventy pounds, and the doctor says if you don't get down to about two hundred twenty-five, you're going to die. That'll revive anybody. So how do I do that? Well, you've got to exercise, and you got to start eating better. As long as I still eat, I might can do it better. So what does that do? That motivation that if you don't do this, you're going to die early will revive inside of me a passion, a desire to want to do these things that I normally don't want to do. Okay, That's a form of revival. But that has nothing to do with spiritual revival. Spiritual revival is that same process, but relative to my relationship with Jesus Christ. So what is spiritual revival? Let me give you some words. An awakening. What does that mean? That means I've kind of fallen asleep in my spiritual life with God. He lives there. I know He's there. Hey, I show up at church once a week. We have a great time. We sing a few songs, read a few Bible verses. I walk out of church, and 30 minutes after I'm off in this parking lot, I'm right back in my life where I used to be, and there's not a thought about God that even crosses my brain until next Sunday morning. That's spiritual sleep. That's what that is. That's why revival is so unusual. That's why when it happens, whole communities change. Because it's not the normal. It's not what normal people do. But it's easy for all of us, including me, to become normal in our life. Okay? We'll talk a little bit more about it in just a second. Um, another description of spiritual revival. It's the realization of one's need for God. You ever get to the place in your life where everything's just kind of floating along okay and you don't really need God? Do you know when you and I pray the most and when we pray the hardest and when we pray the most fervent and when we want to be close to God more than any other time in our life, it's when everything's falling apart and we can't fix it. Now let me ask you this. If God wants me to have that dependency on Him all the time, and the only time I ever do it is when everything's falling apart and I can't fix it. Now, what kind of life am I going to live most of my life? The kind where everything's falling apart and I can't fix it. Because that's the only time that I put God in His rightful place in my life. That's why the best time for us to pray and walk close to God is when everything's going great. Because then we can stay there. <laughs> God's desire for us is that we walk with Him 
in priority, that He is the most important thing in my life. And by the way, when things are going great, where does all that come from? Who is the catalyst for all that anyway? God is. So it's okay to acknowledge that and thank Him for doing that. So, revival is a realization, a waking up of the fact I need God in my life. You know, God, I've been floating along here for two years, making a great income, no problems, everything's going good. I mean, I, no sicknesses, no nothing. And, you know, I, I kind of forgot that I needed you. And uh, so that, that's part of what it is. Another one, it's a renewed desire for God. When is the last time that you woke up and you just couldn't wait to get alone with God and talk to Him because you really needed Him to talk to you? Think about that. When is the last time I wanted to be with God and talk to Him and read His Word and I needed Him to show me something? So bad that I turned off all the TV programs, I turned off the radio, cut the computer off. I didn't even care about any of that stuff. I just, I, I got to talk to God. The more we begin to learn what revival is, the more you're going to realize it ain't normal. Not compared to our world today. Another thing. Revival is a renewed desire not only for God, His Word, His will, obedience to Him, holiness, and a desire to tell other people about Him. If you look at the Bible... There were several times when revival happened. And we're, we're going to look at some of those in the next couple of weeks. But one of the things that you will find is every time God's people got revived, lost people got saved. Every time God's people got revived, lost people got saved. You know why? Because God's people who are revived tell lost people about it. They're not afraid to do it. As a matter of fact, sometimes they're so burdened about doing it that, that it actually makes them sick. Because you might be afraid. And, and I told you guys this. I am, um, these personality things, I am by those an introvert. And, and, and I am. If you're ever with me in a crowd of a bunch of people that I don't know, I'm an introvert. It is very difficult for me to just walk up to somebody on the street and start talking to them about Jesus. That's hard for me. It's hard. Am I supposed to do that? Do I feel like that is a responsibility I have as a believer? Yeah. But more than that, what if that person I was afraid to talk to dies that afternoon and doesn't know the Jesus I know? And spends eternity separated from God because I was too scared to say something. Are there ways that I can share Christ without having to maybe be so confrontational? Sure there are. And I will tell you, one of the things that has been a catalyst to this program that we're going to teach our Fellowship of Young Christian Professionals is the fact that I'm such an introvert. That it's hard for me to do that. So I've come up with a way to do it where I don't have to do that. But I just let God do it. That's what revival is, okay? Now next week, we're going to talk about when is revival needed? What is it that happens in my life 
that causes me to realize I need this. Kind of as a precursor to that, let me give you three examples in the life of the Jews where this process kind of took place, okay? First of all, you remember the story of when um, they were in Egypt? Remember Joseph went down to Egypt in the old story where he became the ruler and they had the famine and um, uh, his family, all of his brothers came down there. Well, that's how they ended up getting there. Well, they stayed there for a long, long time. And then they became slaves in Egypt after Joseph died and they were oppressed. And so they decided we need to get out of here. Well, the problem was they were turning from God. They were beginning to fall into the religious beliefs of the Egyptians. So God raised up a guy named Moses. And God says, Moses, I'm going to use you to get my people out of Egypt, and we're going to see revival, a reviving of my people following me. So what did he do? You know the story. The, all the plagues came, and then the Passover came. And that night, the death angel came through, the firstborn died, and Pharaoh said, take whatever you want and just get out of here. So they did. And the scene that you see next is Moses leading a million strong of these Israelites out of captivity, out of their horror, into a life of freedom and joy, acknowledging that God did it. And as they leave Egypt, you find them singing and praising and honoring God and wanting to do what God tells them to do because of what God had just done for them. So you have the disaster, you have the deliverance, and then you have the revival. Everybody excited about God. Okay? What happened right after that? They came to a small body of water called the Red Sea. Now remember that they're all excited about God. I mean, man, we love God. And we want to live for us. God, we'll do anything you tell us to do because of what you've done for us. They get to the Red Sea. What happens? Moses, you big jerk. We would have been better off to stay in Egypt. Now we're going to die out of here. Hey, wait a minute. What happened to revival? Where did God go? All of a sudden, the circumstances of life snuffed out that priority relationship with God. So what did they need? They needed another revival. They needed to get that desire stirred back again. So what happened? God said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell them to stand and watch what I do for them. By the way, this is found in Exodus chapter 14. In verses 10 through 14, they're complaining again. God's not important. They don't trust Him. Time for revival. Then God delivers them. You remember what happened? The Red Sea parts. They walk over on dry ground. They get to the other side. The Egyptians start following. What happened to the water? Egyptians drown. They're gone. After that happened, God delivers them again. After God shows his mighty hand again, what happens on the other side of the Red Sea after the water calms and all the Egyptians are dead? Well, you can read it in Exodus chapter 14, verses 29 through 31, where the children of Israel once again said, we praise God for what he's done. We will do anything he tells us to do. Twice in just a few chapters, they needed this reviving process. And then you come to Jeremiah and Habakkuk. And they're about to go through it again. Except this time they're going into Babylon into captivity for 70 years. At the end 
of that 70 years of captivity. God delivers them. And under two men, Ezra and Nehemiah, they leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and their city. And then in Nehemiah chapter 8, they have revival. And that's what we're going to look at next week. Nehemiah chapter 8 and what happened. Why was it needed and what took place? Those are three examples of many in the life of God's chosen people, the Jews, where this process of putting God first, the circumstances of the world, snuff that out to where I kind of slide out of that relationship and God comes and delivers and revives them and they put that relationship at the top of their priority list again. It happened over and over and over again. And I submit to you that as believers today, we all need from time to time that same process. Next week we'll talk about why. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of God to work in our lives, not only so that we experience joy in our relationship with you, but so that supernaturally others, through what you're doing in our life, will come to know Christ. Father, we ask that you'll help us this week. We have no idea what we're going to face, but you do. We pray that you'll meet our needs, give us wisdom, protect us, and give us a great week. In Jesus' name. Amen.